There's a number of ways we could do this parable. You remember we came out of the shrewd steward last week? And we could look at this from really two major perspectives. The heading number one could be generosity. Or the heading number two could be the doctrine of hell. We're going to combine the two. Because we're hoping when we do finish Luke, if the Lord leaves me alive long enough, we're on the 77th sermon. We're, we're going to do sermon series. We're going to preach just as deeply, but we're going to take a sermon series. So imagine if we had a sermon series and, and we did a sermon series with this kind of a title. Objections to Christianity. One of the major objections to Christianity is the doctrine of hell. You'd use this parable for it. If you did a sermon series on generosity, you could use this parable for it. So we're going to look at it from both perspectives and kind of combine it and and see what the Lord would have us to know. It's a powerful word today. We'll look at it in chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. Are you ready? 19 to 31. Hear now the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, he said to him. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me, please. Father, we're here by divine design, everyone, which means you have something to speak into each heart. We pray now that you would speak through this broken vessel. No one came here interested to listen to the imagination of a man, but everyone is hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. Make it a word of salvation, we pray, O God, for the unsaved. Make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Father, give us ears to hear minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, three simple headings. We're going to break it down. looks like the way it's been broken down for us by the Lord Jesus, kind of like a a play. We'll look at Act 1 and Act 2, and then we'll look at the speaker himself. So number one. Under the rich man and Lazarus, act one would be the contrast in life. 
It's very striking, a very striking contrast. Act two would be their condition in death. And then finally, number three would be the Christ himself, the one who's telling this. Now, the question has come up over, over the ages. Is this a parable or is this uh, just a historical narrative with somebody named Lazarus? And I'm certainly never one to, to question the great John Calvin, but he believed it was historical because of the named character. I believe, and, and, and certainly many great theological minds do believe that it's a parable. It, it really wouldn't matter. The meaning would be the same. But I think as a parable, we'll, we'll, we'll be careful to, to not try to, to flesh out every single point in the parable. For example, when, when we see that the rich man is speaking to Abraham, we ought not to assume that, that there's conversation that goes on between heaven and hell. Those would be details that we would not be looking at. We, we shouldn't think that we could go from one side to the other or that you could possibly be in, in heaven and see family members or, or friends who are in hell. That's not what this is teaching. But the parable, it seems to, it seems to me that, that it's a parable that falls in line with the parables that, that we have been looking at. We've seen the parable of the, 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 the shepherd and we, we saw the, the parable of uh, the, the prodigal son. And here we see it start. There was a rich man. Same as there was a rich man with, this, with the, the last parable, this, the shrewd manager. So it, it seems to be a parable. It's been used for a variety of things. It's been used to rebuke the rich. It's been used to defend a vow of poverty. It's been used to teach heaven and hell. We'll, we'll take a look at all of it, but let's make it clear. Uh, you'll see in just a moment, it in no way can be used to rebuke the rich because the rich man who is in hell is speaking to the rich man who is in heaven, Abraham, one of the richest men who ever lived. So it, it, it has nothing to do with that. Remember what we've said about wealth. It has, it's what possesses you, not what you possess. That's the key in understanding wealth. So here's the key line, I think, but it comes before what we just read in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money. They were looking for their identity in money. So now Jesus is rebuking them. He's rebuking them for loving money. He's rebuking them for self-justification. And let me make one more point here. Don't miss this. He's rebuking them for denying the authority of the Old Testament. And you're going to see that in this parable. They deny the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. They had the Hebrew Bible, and they denied it. So I think all three of those are woven into this parable. So Act 1 we are ready, and we shall head out into some deep water. Now, when I said that last night, yeah, they put that picture back up. So let me, let me clarify the deep water. Deep water that is also calm to let our nets down for a catch. The contrast in life. Final point here. When you see what happens to Lazarus in death, when you look back to the history of our country, and you look back at slavery, it's hard to find a lot of good things that, that came out of that, but certainly we would look at those Negro spirituals and say, wow, what incredibly deep and sound theology. And you might remember the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. You, you'll, you're going to see that here in this passage, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan. And what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels 
coming after me, coming for to carry me home. And that's exactly what all the saints of God experience when they breathe their last. And that's what Lazarus experienced here. So are you ready? Let's take a look. May God be gracious to us this morning in teaching us deep truths. Number one, there's a contrast, and they're real simple. We'll just look at them one after the other. Under the rich man and under Lazarus. One was rich, the other was poor. One was clothed in purple. In just a cultural context, in order to have fabrics dyed in purple in the ancient world, you needed to be a very rich man. I think it was Dr. Sproul who said uh, that kings would be classified under the heading of the purple, if you will. Purple was exclusive for royalty, nobility. So this guy was as, as wealthy as you could possibly be. And that's instructive to see that he's clothed in purple and linen. The fabrics even underneath were, were quite valuable. And of course, Lazarus is clothed in what? Sores. This man lived in luxury and Lazarus lived with dogs. And, and one point again in the ancient world, it's not like the dogs that you have at home. They weren't pets. These were wild dogs. They, they, these, this, this wouldn't be a good thing. It wouldn't be the picture that you have of being with your, your pet and your dog. And we all have many good pictures of that, right? Those that have dogs. <clears throat> these were wild. But he lived with the wild dogs out by the gate. This man feasted daily and, and Lazarus longed for crumbs. Then it really gets important. Watch. The man died, rich man, and he was buried. And I've added the word with pomp, pomp and circumstance, right? And Lazarus died, period. You understand what that means? It doesn't say that Lazarus was buried. Why? He, he, he didn't matter to anyone. or to, to, He meant nothing. This guy had an elaborate, elaborate ceremony for his burial. And that's how they did it in the ancient world. You know what ceremonies are today from memorials and funerals. So it's instructive that we see that this man was died and, and then buried. They cared for him. Lazarus was thrown into the garbage heap that continued to burn outside of Jerusalem. However, that was just the physical body that one day will be resurrected. Their souls instantly went somewhere. We'll see that in a moment. And there's one more thing. And I think this is the key in understanding the parable. This is the only parable with a proper name. So you ask the question why. I think, I think the answer is here. There's no name for the rich man, and Lazarus had a proper name. The contrast is deliberate. I don't think there's any question about that. We need to look at the name Lazarus. What is the name Lazarus? Remember, in the ancient world, names really meant a lot. Names would actually help identify what you hoped to be for the character of the child. Lazarus simply means God helps. I think that's instructive. It's an abbreviated form of Eliezer. But Lazarus, take a look, he had his identity in God. God was his help. But some would say, okay, well, that, 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 he, God didn't look too helpful. Here was this poor man covered with sores, with nothing to eat, laid at the rich man's gate. How helpful was God? Well, that would only be from our perspective. But from God's perspective... God's eternal plan for this man, where is he now? He's at Abraham's side. He is seated in glory forever and ever and ever. 
if you lived what, 80, 90, 100 years? What we need is a perspective that God has in life, not ours. He trusted in God. God was his help, regardless of what his circumstances were. But, but for the rich man, we can assume clearly that God was not his help. The rich man had his identity where? In his wealth. And when he lost his wealth, he lost his identity. 19th century Danish philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote a book, The Sickness Unto Death. And I'm not a scholar, but reading through it, he's, he's wrestling with the idea of, of sin and coming up with the best definition of sin. And he's working through it, and he's keeping in view the Pharisees. And he knows that sin would be, if you looked at the confessions, right, any, any want of or transgression of the law of God. So we know that that's sin. Breaking the law of God. But Kierkegaard said it's got to be more than that. Because the Pharisees weren't breaking really any sins. Weren't breaking the law. They were keeping the law. They were law keepers. So he says there has to be something deeper. There has to be something more to what it means to be living in sin. And here's what he comes up with. And and I think this is profound. Sin is at least breaking the law. We know that. But there's more. It's building our identities and self-worth on anything other than God. When you read the story, you don't read about any scandalous sins for the, for the rich man. He, he's just rich. He doesn't seem to be doing... He, he, he's neglectful of the poor man. But Kierkegaard was right. Where was the rich man's identity? In his wealth. Where was his self-worth? In his wealth. So the question before the house today is, where, where is your identity? Where have you placed your self-worth? And you know that we can place it in just about anything. And I'm not talking about bad things, good things. Maybe you have your worth as, as, as a, a businessman or woman. Maybe in your, your talent to sing or to dance or to be artistic. Maybe as a parent. Maybe you find your worth in your, in your, in your prosperity your power or your position, your, your comfort. You find your worth. We, we find our identities in everything other than God. Look at some of the great figures in sports who find themselves suddenly outside of the game and you read their stories and they're lost. Some, not all. Some, because their identity was was in the game. If you have your identity in anything smaller than God, when that gets threatened, your life gets tipped over. You become anxious and angry. You, You become defensive. And you do everything to hold on to that. Good things, not bad things. Being a parent, if your worth is in your children. And one of the wheels comes off the track. Your whole identity is threatened. And this man has his identity in wealth. And when his wealth was taken from him, he no longer had an identity. And I think Jesus is deliberate in the contrast that Lazarus has a name. You, those who are in Christ, have a name. You are Christian because you have put your trust in Christ alone. God is your help. 
For this man, there was nothing left but the painful memory of a wasted life. Roman philosopher Cicero calls it the sumum bonum. What is the highest good? What is the highest good for you in in your life? He was responding to the Greek idea of what good was. So he says there's a highest good, and that highest good in your life will drive you to do anything in order to hang on to it. And if it's anything smaller than God, eventually it goes away, and you will have lost your identity. So what is your greatest good in life? And then if we go back a couple chapters, remember in chapter 12, remember the rich man who had barns that were filled? And he says, I know. He had a great crop. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my my barns. I'll build bigger ones. So instead of asking God for a bigger heart so that he could give more away, he says, I'll build bigger barns. And what does Jesus say? Ready for this? Luke 12, 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Don't miss this. There's no scandalous sin here for the rich man. But he seems to violate the basic tenets of the Old Testament that say what? Love your neighbor. Care for the poor. Use your wealth for something other than yourself. And he did not. He couldn't give any of that wealth away. Why? Because it was, it was his identity. If your identity is in your wealth, then it, it's impossible to give it away. But those who have great wealth and have their identity in God, give it away with both hands. Because their identity is fixed. And it never fluctuates. The market could crash. And they wouldn't go out of a window. Because their trust is in God. Christ alone. So where do you find your identity? That brings us to Act 2. Ready? What was their condition in death? This is now what's called the role reversal. Very simple. The rich man now is the beggar. And Lazarus now is truly rich. Do you see what God has done? Forever and ever and ever, Lazarus is truly rich. When you read in, 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 the, in the account that he's taken to, again, you don't want to look at it literally. He's taken to the, to the, the bosom of, of Abraham. It's, it's telling us that he, he's, he's now in a position of, of, of great wealth and great authority in heaven. He's seated at the banquet table, the feast, the feast that we have planned for us in heaven. He has gone to that place that everyone desires. Remember in the, in the, 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 the night of the, the Last Supper and the way they're seated at the tables? And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter doesn't, wasn't close to Jesus, but John was. And they're leaning generally. They're leaning on their left side. Right? So your back is to the person behind you. The way it was set up, it seems to suggest that John is leaning and Jesus is behind him. And Peter says, ask him, what, who's, who's going to betray him? Ask him. And, and this, it seems to suggest that, that John leans back, and he leans back on the Lord's chest, on his bosom. That's the picture here. What a picture. 
Did God help Lazarus? No matter how many years he endured laying at this guy's gate, forever and ever and ever, he is in a seat now of the most unimaginable comfort and wealth in glory with the Lord. So the rich man now begs, and the beggar now is truly rich. Let me show you a couple things. This is important for us to understand in this parable. It teaches these truths. There are a few things that the unbelieving secular world would like to think happens at death. You want to know one of the things they'd like to think happens at death? It would be just like when you go to sleep at night and and you don't have any dreams. You just sleep and then you wake up. Last night, I had a very unrestful sleep because that bed would not stop going like this. I got up two or three times just to put my feet on the floor. It was horrible. And so, so that's not the sleep I'm speaking of. The sleep where you just simply, you're just lights out. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you wake up the next morning. And the unbeliever says, that's, that's what death is. I go to sleep and I, I just don't wake up. No. No, that, that's, that's not what this parable teaches. It's not what Jesus said. Je- Jesus, you have to ask the question. Jesus teaches more about money than he teaches about heaven and hell. But he teaches more about hell than he does of heaven. Why? There has to be something very instructive there. So watch this. Consciousness is not destroyed by death. You're still conscious. How do we know that? Take a look. Verse 24. You know where you are and you know where you have been. You not only know where you are, you know where you've been. Listen to this. Listen to the exchange. And and remember, that's why we believe it to be a parable. Don't get caught up in the details. There's no real exchange that's taking place. Okay, but this is is for our purposes. Jesus is, is telling this parable for our purpose, to understand what really happens in death. Father Abraham, the rich man says. Now he calls him father. So so what do we know about the rich man? Listen to this. Don't miss this. He's, he's, He's Jewish. He's a student of the scriptures at some level. He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He serves the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at some level. That's why the Pharisees would have been appalled. What do you mean he's in hell? He's he's one of us. But he was only Abraham's by natural birth. He wasn't the spiritual seed. But from a surface perspective, he was in. He was rich. He was Jewish. Abraham was his father. But he's in hell. That's instructive. Have pity on me. I am in agony in this fire. Abraham replied, son. He calls him son. Remember. His consciousness is alive and well. You received all of your good things in this life. Is that what you want? You want all your good things in this life? 50, 60, 70, 100 years, you want all your good things in this life and forever and ever and ever to be in torment. He says, remember, you had all of your good stuff. You had no interest in God. You were justifying yourself. You were proving yourself by your wealth. You were saving yourself through your wealth. You justified your existence through your wealth. Remember that. So instead of using the big word, 
Annihilationism, which just simply means that, that when you die, then you're no more. I want to use a simple term. Ready for this? There's no such thing as the unbeliever would hope as soul sleep. The soul doesn't sleep. The soul is eternal. The soul goes on forever and ever and ever, world without end. So you don't just go to sleep and it goes away. But there's more. So the hope of the wicked is that I just don't exist. What if you're wrong? And Jesus says you are. Character. Watch this. There's no change in character. Here's, you want to know the great challenges with the doctrine of hell? People have a picture of, of, of this, this, this mean and, and ogreish God stuffing people down into this, this pit and this hole. And they're crawling up the sides as, as, as quickly as they can to try to get out of this place. That's the picture. That's probably the picture some of you may have had. Picture of hell. God's stuffing them in, throwing them in, casting them away, and they're doing everything they can to get out. Some great works of art have shown it that way. Jesus tells us different. There's no change. This man still sits on the throne of his life. Notice what he says. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's still ordering people around. So he's ordering Abraham to order Lazarus to send Lazarus into hell to give him some relief. No character change at all. But there's more. Because Abraham says, "Mm, no. Send Lazarus to my father, he says. Verse 27, 28. To warn my brothers. Okay, now, need to pause for a second. You know what he's saying? We can fear people out of hell. We can tell them how bad it is. The Bible's already told us how bad it is. So he says, you send Lazarus back. What does that that tell us? A couple things. The rich man knew Lazarus. His brothers knew Lazarus. The whole town knew Lazarus. They did nothing for him in life, but they know Lazarus now is dead. And he says, if you send him back, if you give us a miracle, you give a miracle to my brothers then they won't end up in this awful place. Stay with me. Abraham replies, you ready for this? Remember what I said at the beginning? That Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for denying the authority of the Scriptures. They had the Hebrew Bible. Listen. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. The Pharisees had Moses and the prophets. They had the Hebrew Bible. They knew exactly what the Bible said. They were students of the Bible. They memorized the Bible. And they denied the authority of the Bible. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He knows that repentance is required in order to receive forgiveness. And he has no interest in repenting. God is still not his help. He doesn't even address God. Take a look. He's barking orders. He is still self-righteous. He still denies the authority of the Old Testament. And he barks orders at Abraham to order Lazarus. But then it gets worse. What do you think he did by telling Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers? What he's saying is, the scriptures weren't enough. I had the scriptures. They have the scriptures. They need a miracle. So what is he doing? He's blaming God. 
He said, I didn't get enough information. You're the reason. You, you go tell God I'm here because of him. But if you send Lazarus back and you tell my brothers, then they won't end up here. Do you see what he's doing? His character, his character has continued to descend into the abyss. It's going to change your picture of hell in a moment. You can't, you can't. Listen, Jonathan Edwards. We talked about this a number of times. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you've never read it, oh, you have to read it. And I'm certain that in that day and in that time and over the, the, the years, right? It really was one of the, the, the great uh, foundational building blocks of the Great Awakening. That this was a fearful sermon. The sinners in the hands of an angry God. And they were weeping inside the sanctuary. And, and, and people who've read it, I, I, I've read it, and it's, 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 it's striking. But I don't believe you can scare people away from how I don't think you can. I don't think it works that way. I think it works just the opposite. And I think we want to see that in the doctrine of hell. People want to get rid of, listen to me, people want to get rid of Christians in the church. Pastors, preachers want to soften, want to get rid of, want to, want to, want to delude the doctrine of hell as if to give to the watching world a more loving God. I say to you, it's just, just the opposite. You're only going to see the love of God and the extent of God's love in the doctrine of hell. You ready? Here we go. Number three. The Christ. 1631. Abraham said, here it is. Listen to this. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Okay. Who? This is the parable. This is what Jesus has said. This was written years and years and years later, right, by Luke. Was there a resurrection that took place? First of all, there were a couple resurrections already, right? Jesus rose a few people from the dead. He's going to raise, not this Lazarus, but the other Lazarus. He's going to raise a Lazarus from the dead. But what is this alluding to? The resurrection of Jesus. So in the parable, before Jesus actually goes to the cross, Jesus is telling the story, and he says, listen, even if someone rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. It's not a miracle that's going to get him out of hell. It's trusting in me. It's trusting in, it's, it's, and, and you already have what you need. To trust in. The Old Testament scriptures. People got saved in the Old Testament scriptures. They believed by faith. Abraham believed God. By faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Yes, we have a, a, a much greater record in the New Testament, right? The old is, is revealed in the new. We understand that. But they, they, the Old Testament scriptures were clear. So now in Luke 24, look at this. Luke 24, 27. Jesus now has been raised. He's out of the grave. He's on the road to Emmaus. Notice what he says. Now, this is where we're going to hit the doctrine, and, and we'll be very brief. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Bible, the Bible they had. He explained to them what was said in, all, note this, all the scriptures concerning himself. What does that mean? Don't you have to ask the question? Does this include the doctrine of hell? Does the doctrine of hell speak about Jesus? Well, it has to. So if you look back in the Old Testament, there's just a couple passages. I'm just going to give you one. But you go to Isaiah 66, you go to Daniel 12, and you see this, this eternal wrath of God. Okay? Because why? God is making good on his promise to Adam in the garden. The day that you eat this, you will surely die. He died spiritually instantly, and he died physically later. Okay, so take a look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18.4. The one who sins is the one who will die. This is going to come under the heading of justice. And I'm going to tell you something in just a moment. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is... Death. Okay. There's two things that every human heart beats for. Two things. Justice and love. 
You agree with that? It's true. How do you know that? Whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. I don't know anyone who has never at least said this once. That's not fair. That's not right. Somebody has to do something about that. So when people say to me, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe in the doctrine of hell, I said, okay. What happens to, to people who torture babies and rape people? I mean, you could name some monstrous names throughout recorded history. I don't need to do that here. What happens to them? Well, yeah, they, they all should go some, okay. Why? Because your heart cries out for justice. You know that if there was no, and, and there were cultures that still don't believe in, in, in ultimate justice, so what do they do? They take vengeance in their own hands. You would never be able to live at peace with other people if you, if you didn't believe in a God that was just. Why? You'd have to make it right. When somebody wronged you, you'd have to make it right. But when somebody wrongs you now, today, you can do what? You can trust in God. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Leave it to me. You know that all things will be made right, but that's still not enough. That's not our argument for the doctrine of hell, that all things will be, that's not enough. We're going to go deeper because there's another thing that your heart beats for, true love. And you know that it does. You want it more than anything else. It trumps even justice. 1 John, 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does that mean? Take a look at this picture. Theologians say this about this picture. This is where justice and mercy kiss. In the Apostles' Creed, we, we are a confessional church, and we say he descended into hell. Do you, do you know what that means? We, we don't want to debate because great scholarly minds have debated this, and what does it actually mean? I, I don't know exactly what it means, but we can at least say this. Whatever that was, whatever hell was, from the sixth to the ninth hour when he was set, he descended into hell on our behalf. He cried out, my God, my God, why? Lazarus... <laughs> The rich man was experiencing his own hell for his own sins. Jesus experienced hell for the sins of the world, for all those who were his. And he cried out, my God, my God. The only love that has any meaning in this life is a love that will sacrifice. You know that in your own relationships. If you love someone and there's no sacrifice, what kind of love is that? You have a love here. You have a love here in Christ who descended into hell and took your hell upon himself. So, there's another question they ask. If, if why, why did Jesus go to hell? For you. Because he loved you. But so there's another argument from the skeptics and say, okay, okay, I get this hell thing. I, okay, I'll, I'll take that. But now here's, what, here, here's where I think you, you err, Pastor. Here's where I, you, you say we're finite beings and we serve an infinite God, okay? So we have a finite number of sins. 
on this side of the grave. What do you mean? Let's take a look. You can only sin so much and you die. So it would seem to be that the punishment doesn't fit the crime if you're judged and you endure the wrath of God for all eternity. Certainly at some point, even Hitler, at some point, it, a million years? We're, 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 we're. Jesus says, no, I want to show you something about the heart in hell. You ready? In hell, the rich man never asks God for help. He speaks only to Abraham, not God. He never, ever, ever addresses God. He hates God. He seeks to get Lazarus in hell, not to get himself out. So your picture of people climbing up the walls trying to get out is not accurate. He's where he always has been. He lived in hell, in this life. For he lived apart from the help of God. And that is hell for anyone. And you know it. Because you know when you have done that. And finally, the sin of all sins. He goes on blaming God for his circumstances, not himself. His sins are infinite, and they deserve an infinite punishment in hell. So to all those who are there. The rich man seeks relief, not release, through repentance. But it goes even deeper. Let's just... Close with one verse and a quote from C.S. Lewis. Luke 23. Away with this man. Away with this man, Jesus. Release Barabbas to us. That's what every self-righteous heart says. That's what everyone who is trusting in anything smaller than God. Away with this man, Jesus. I have no interest in Jesus. I don't need him. I'm doing fine all by myself. Release Barabbas to us. I will sit upon the throne of my life. And here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. In the problem of pain, he has a whole chapter on hell. You ready for this? Listen to these words and we're done. Lewis writes, I believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful. Rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins? And at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid. That is what he has done.
You still want to be left alone? Or do you want God to be your help? It's the ultimate question. You're seeking your identity in something smaller than God. Good things, really good things. But good things that become ultimate things become bad things, and they enslave us. And our hearts begin to beat for things smaller than God. So now's a point of invitation. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ says to you, come. Will you come to Christ? All who are weary and heavy laden, put your doing down. There's only one way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from me. There really is a heaven and there really is a hell. What, what amazes me is that if you poll any number of Christians, almost all of them would say, I believe in heaven. And I know I'm going. But many would say, I don't believe in hell. And if there was one, there'd be no way that I would be there. Jesus says, check your heart. And see what it is that you're trusting in. Only Christ will get us through the Jordan to the other side. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here or by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Christ, they've never prayed to receive Jesus, now would be a wonderful time, even by way of the internet. What a wonderful time to pray. Very simple prayer. God, I heard the truth. I didn't really understand sin to be simply trusting in something other than you, but now I see the truth. I, I ask that you forgive me. I repent. Give me the gift of repentance. I repent of my sin. I turn my heart to Christ. I trust in you. I want to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to understand this deep truth and help us to take a close look. Examine our hearts for anything that encroaches in our relationship with you. That we would make sure that you and you alone are our summum bonum, our highest good in this life. And when that is the case, it will be true in the next. And this we thank you for in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all stand with us?